I'd like to call to the stage now uh, Dr. Alloway, who's going to speak about navigating rapid change in ovarian cancer, PARP inhibitors, and clinical pathways. Dr. Alloway. Good morning. I'm from Pittsburgh, and these are my disclosures. So the learning objectives for this uh, talk are the following. Analyze within class distinction of um, PAP inhibitors. Review recent clinical data concerning the safety and efficacy of these agents. Discuss current uh, guideline recommendations for ovarian cancer and strategies to improve uh, the incorporation of recommendations into clinical pathways. Integrate PAP inhibitors into evidence-based ovarian cancer clinical pathways based on discrete PAP factors. So um, my first slide is just um, a historical background about ovarian cancer um, approval and um, treatment landscape. Um, So if you look at this slide, um, from the beginning of this slide, to approximately, oh, there you go. From there to here covers a period of approximately 40 years. And um, from that point to 2018, as you can see, is only a period of about four years. And in those first 40 years, there were only um, seven chemo agents that were approved, which was all we had to use in the standard therapy of ovarian cancer. All the seven agents approved uh, were for treatment indications, and outside of clinical trials, there were uh, no other choices for women being treated for ovary cancer. Maintenance um, indication uh, was even worse. We did many big trials. I just put uh, two examples um, over there, sorry, I just put two examples over there of two of the largest trials, uh, but all of them um, basically did not show benefit. And in a short period of four years, see what happened. Um, treatment indication, we had three agents approved. And for maintenance indications, we had four agents approved. Um, So a lot began to happen and happening very quickly. Um, So the key questions um, are what is the target population for which agent, which agent should be used for treatment, and, of course, um, how about maintenance So I was told to briefly touch on the epidemiology of ovarian cancer. Uh, This is actually a worldwide map from the um, WHO, and that's ovary cancer right down there. Affects approximately 300,000 women worldwide, and every year kills close to 200,000. And North America actually accounts for about 10% of that, uh, where the color right there, and half occur in Asian countries. Um, This is incidence of the top 10 cancers that affect women. And what I want to 
point your attention to is ovary cancer is actually not listed in the first 10. So in incidence, it's not there. But if you look at the map uh, below, look. So ovary cancer is the number five killer, even though in incidence it's much lower than the other um, cancers that were listed at the top. So approximately 90% of these ovary cancers are from the surface of the ovary or the fallopian tube or the primary peritoneum, so we call them epithelial cancers, typically asymptomatic in the um, early stages, which is why most people are diagnosed late. And um, we believe that 15 to 20% um, are accounted for by genetic mutations, the most uh, common of which is BRCA1 and 2 mutations, and of course, Lynch syndrome, the mismatch repair um, system. Um, ovary cancer treatment is surgery, either as a primary debulking surgery or as neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach with intervasitoreductive um, surgery. And except for the low-grade um, stages one and two, uh, sorry, stages one A and B um, patients, everybody is treated with chemotherapy at the initial part of treatment. Um, the initial chemotherapy is typically carboplatin and taxol with or without bevacizumab, and maintenance therapy is a new indication uh, that uh, became available in the last maybe two years. And this is the surgery that is done for ovary cancer. It's just there for listing. I'm not going to take you through those. And surgery does have impact. This is a slide from Professor Bristow. And if you look here, this is the um, median um, survivor. And if you look at the extent of surgery done, i.e. how clean you leave the belly of the woman after you finish the surgery, it directly correlates to a positive uh, survival impact. So in the era of targeted therapy, the first agent that was assessed was actually bevacizumab, and the first um, trial over there is GOG218 by uh, Robert Berger, and the second one is uh, Timothy Perrin's paper from Europe, which is ICON-7. Um, and the reason why these studies were done is exactly this. If you look here, this is the, um, this is the um, cancer surface, and you can see that it has a lot of receptors that are directed to react to uh, new vessel uh, promoting molecules. And the most relevant one here is VEGF, uh, receptor 1 and 2, which is activated by VEGF as the ligand, and those, of course, are the uh, targets for bevacizumab. And so GOG218 recruited patient into a three-arm prospective um, randomized trial, and those arms are as listed over there. Uh, this arm is the BEV throughout, and that is just BEV during treatment. And this was the uh, Kaplan-Meier curve for progression-free survivor. As you can see, uh, bevacizumab uh, did lead to a PFS gain of approximately four months. And if you look at both trials, 
um, they were similar, except uh, the, the difference is a little smaller in the ICON-7 trial. I should mention for those who are familiar with this that they use 7.5 milligrams per kilogram body weight of bevacizumab in the ICON-7 trial. We used 15 milligrams per kilogram body weight in our trial. So in 2018, the, the FDA approved bevacizumab as part of the frontline maintenance therapy for ovarian cancer. In the 218 trial, it was given for 17 months. So you avoided it in the first uh, adjuvant therapy, and then you give it for the next five cycles, which is because we typically give six cycles, and then for 12 months after that. Then PAP inhibitors, which I will just briefly go through the Basic, but yes. Um, basically, uh, there's um, cancer cells and even normal cells sustain double-stranded DNA break uh, that you can see there. And when this happens, there are two pathways to repair it. The homologous recombination pathway, which is the high-fidelity um, error-proof pathway that leads to normal rejoining. And then this is called non-head joining uh, pathway that typically utilizes the PAP enzyme. Um, in a more, in a much simpler version, this is this is again um, DNA break occurring. Um, it traps the PAP enzyme because that's one of the enzymes that would be responsible for uh, repairing it. If you block PAP, um, see what happens. A normal cell we use the um, double-stranded um, homologous recombination repair to um, repair the, cell, the damage, and then everything would go back to normal. And here, uh, the um, repair um, is error-prone, and in cancer cell, if this is occurring, it will lead to accumulation of damages and cell death. Same thing over here. Actually, I like this diagram better because it, it's much, much easier. So, again, double-stranded break here, and the way it gets repaired is either using the PAP enzyme, which goes to normal. If the PAP enzyme is blocked, um, again, in normal cell, we use um, the BRCA genes, uh, or the homologous recombination repair genes, which include the BRCA genes, to repair um, this if it's intact. If that gene is deficient, then this um, DNA would not be repaired, and then there will be what we call synthetic lethality, which is, leads to death, cell death. Now, I said 15 to 20% of ovary cancers occur as a result of um, genetic mutation, but if, if you actually assess the tumor themselves, either somatic or genetic um, mutation is found in almost 50% of ovary cancers. And these are all related to the um, homologous recombination um, repair complex, which, which is all these genes that make um, up to 50% of all ovarian cancers. So this emphasizes the relevance of the PARP inhibitors in this um, class, I mean, this group of 
um, cancer. So the PARP inhibitors were investigated simultaneously by different companies in different countries, and um, over a period of about four years, these four maintenance trials were published somewhere between 2010 and 2014. The two bottom ones relate to Olaparib. Um, this one is Rubraca, and the first one there is Zedula. And because of this, look what happened. Olaparib now is approved after third line um, for jam line, BRCA, uh, for treatment as effective 2014. And after second line, it's also approved for maintenance therapy. And from June of 2019, it's now approved in first line jam BRCA patients after their initial treatment of ovarian cancer. Uh, Rubraca has two indications, all comma maintenance therapy after um, second line treatment, um, after second line uh, uh, platinum sensitive ovarian cancer treatment, and also for treatment indication, also after second line. And Niraparib has an approval for maintenance therapy in all commas after they've gone through two lines of chemotherapy for platinum-sensitive recurrent ovary cancer. So the, the trials in detail, I'm not going to spend much time on each of these. However, this is the um, NOVA trial that led to the approval of Niraparib. As you can see, um, the randomization was two to one, um, uh, placebo-controlled, um, and then they got uh, niraparib, 300 milligrams PO per day, uh, or placebo, and the endpoint was progression-free survival. And look at the curve. Uh, what is peculiar about this is we, before this trial, we'd never seen this type of curve in um, solid tumor. It's just, it blew the record. And progression-free survival was 19 months, actually, sorry, 24, 21 months in the active treatment group compared to 5.5 months in the placebo group. And when you actually look at the group that did not have uh, GBRCA mutation, the PFS was still different, nine versus four months. Then the SOLO2 trial, this is for Niraparib, um, again, maintenance therapy. Uh, these patients were required to have GBRCA mutation and they were randomized again two to one for laparib versus placebo. And primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Look at the curve, another very wide separation. And uh, with a progression-free survival of 19 months in the active group versus uh, five months in the control group. And now, the, Olaparib, sorry, the company also did another trial, which is called Study 19 by Jonathan Leatherman, and they randomized in a double-blind uh, fashion uh, people to 400 milligrams twice daily of uh, Olaparib, and <clears throat> this time they allowed people that did not have GBRCA mutation. That's the big deal about Study 19 compared to Solo 2, and... Um, we we'll move on with from this. This is 
The complement curve, again, you see Olaporib there and placebo group there, and this is an all-comma um, curve. So it was very active. Then Rucaparib in area three, uh, it was um, a biomarker-based study, randomizing people to Rucaparib 600 milligrams uh, twice a day versus placebo. Um, these patients uh, had tissue testing for germline and somatic mutation. Uh, they also did um, LOH, LOH score, loss of heterozygosity score, and they were categorized into uh, three groups, you know, the um, T BRCA tissue um, mutation group, the LOHI group, and the LOH low group. And if you look at the so the T BRCA and LOHI group are classified as the HRD. And if you look at the, the curve, the first one is for uh, uh, BRCA mutation only group. The HRD group includes everybody with either BRCA mutation or uh, HRD or LOH high. And then this is intention to treat analysis. Everybody, again, look at the curve. They separate for each group. And when you look at um, blinded independent central review, um, it even looks better. So these are extremely active agents. And what I want you to look at here is just, just concentrate on these hazard ratios. And I'm sorry I didn't point them out in the, in the other trials, but they're all in the same range, 0 0.27, 0 0.20, 0 0.31. That's where all of them are. But like all treatments, there is toxicity. And the most um, common ones are listed here. So all grades are the first row in each group. So for hemoglobin, all grades. Um, but this is really the important one, grade three and four toxicity. And for platelets, all grades and grade three and four, and for um, um, neutropenia, or grades and grade three and four. They're manageable. I should say that for um, neuroparib, if you use um, a reduced dose of this agent, you get a better uh, profile of platelet than this. 300 milligrams was used in NOVA, but 200 milligrams does a job as well with less uh, platelet toxicity. And treatment interruption, um, again, it actually looks very um, concerning if you look at um, all of them, but here is what you should look at. So in over 80% of the cases across board, um, the patients uh, did not need to discontinue treatment. They just needed treatment adjustment. For treatment, so all the discussion we've had so far about those trials are for maintenance indications. So for treatment, um, area two was a study for Rubraca. As mentioned before, the dose is 600 milligrams twice a day. Uh, these patients had recurrent serous or endometrial ovarian cancer, had con completed at least one platinum-based chemotherapy, so it was uh, studied in the second line. Um, 
they were classified into three groups. Again, let me, as I mentioned earlier, and that's the treatment um, allocation and look at the curve. This is um, the BRCA uh, mutation group, which performed the best. And um, next is the white type, but LOH2. So this is the HRD group, again in the middle. And of course, the um, non-BRCA mutation HRD negative group were the lowest uh, performing. For Laparib, uh, quickly, um, it was a monotherapy that was studied in, this is um, Solo 1, uh, sorry, Solo 3, um, studied um, against best choice of chemotherapy, and these are the trial arms. The chemotherapies include liposoma doxorubicin, paclitax, gemcitabine, and topotecan. And, of course, on the other side of the trial, you got randomized two to one, so two to olaparib and one to chemo. And look at the um, overall response rate. That's olaparib arm in green and blue. And if you look, this is actually um, split per how many lines of chemotherapy the patient received. And as you can imagine, those who have received more than three lines uh, tend to have less overall response. But nonetheless, look at the um, response rate. The people in blue here had complete response. Again, that may not sound uh, as impressive uh, as it is uh, looking on the map, but we simply don't see this type of response after people have been treated with three lines of chemo uh, in ovary cancer. And the Kaplan-Meier curves bear witness to what was being reported. Uh, on the left side is the uh, blinded independent central review showing Olaparib uh, being much better. And this is the investigator assessed um, um, response and progression-free survival. Um, if you look here, so not only uh, was the primary objective met, they looked at all the secondary objective, median time uh, to forced treatment, uh, median time, sorry, median progression-free survivor two, um, the effect of the benefit uh, of um, olaparib continued, you know, to persist. The toxicity data, it's, again, just concentrate on the enhanced colored areas. Those are the grade three um, and four toxicities. Um, so, you know, the worst of them is anemia, and it was 21%. Um, there was 9.6% for neutropenia, uh, but manageable. Um, for first-line treatment, I showed you um, that slide at the beginning, uh, looking at the studies done by the GOG. Actually, um, when I counted last time in the literature, there were probably about 29 maintenance studies done before 2018 uh, for chemotherapy 
which included actually a monoclonal antibody against CA125, the oregovomab. We studied that, led by Jonathan Berrick. Everything was negative. Um, so maintenance simply was not indicated in ovary cancer. We just observed them after they completed initial therapy. Then um, Olaparib was studied in solo one, which um, in a fashion that we call switch maintenance. So you complete chemotherapy. Um, in this case, they were required to have germline mutation, although a couple of the patients had tissue mutation. Um, in the HR system, and then you received um, Olaparib, as shown here, 300 milligrams twice a day to 60 patients, or placebo, uh, 131 patients, because it was a two-to-one randomization, and uh, these were the endpoints. Primary endpoint was investigator assessed PFS, and um, the secondary endpoints are listed over there. Look what happened. So, again, the Olaparib group, in fact, the median progression-free survivor has not been met. And uh, for the placebo group, I think it was 13.8 months. Okay, I was looking for that. Um, <clears throat> at approximately three years, only um, the progress, 60 percent of the Olaparib group remained uh, progression-free, and um, 27 percent of the placebo group remained progression-free. Just like we showed for Niraparib, look at the secondary endpoints, median time to four subsequent therapy, median uh, progression-free survivor two, and median time to second subsequent therapy. Look how um, persistent the benefit remained. So these are beyond incredible. Look at the hazard ratio, 0.3, just like I mentioned. Um, toxicity, of course, we have to talk about. Um, the most common is nausea, and uh, fatigue and asthenia uh, is the second most common. And the grade three, four components of the toxicity is what you see in those enhanced areas. Again, manageable uh, with very minimal discontinuation rate. And this led to the approval of um, Olaparib as switch maintenance following uh, first-line treatment for ovary cancer in patients who have germline mutation in ovarian cancer, but people with tissue mutation are being given the drug as well, the somatic mutation. So um, I've got time. I wanted to just limit the talk to age, the, the agents that have been approved and the study that led to the approval because that's what is relevant to the pathway development community that, that uh, are meeting here today. Uh, but just for you to know, uh, European Society for Medical Oncology meeting took place last month, and three very big trials were presented. Um, one is called PRIMA. The PRIMA was a um, trial of uh, Niraparib in all 
glaucoma, um, ovarian cancer patients who had residual tumor. After they completed first-line chemotherapy, they were randomized to uh, receive either um, niraparib, uh, 300 milligrams twice a day, uh, once a day, or placebo. And this treatment was um, for about two to three years, depending on which arm of the trial you went into. And most, all the, actually all the patients were required to have residual disease to be on the trial, and it was a positive trial. Hazard ratio, same place we've seen it for Laparib, is about 0 0.3, 0 0.34, 0.4. Um, the other trial that was presented was um, Pillar 1, which combined olaparib with bevacizumab as maintenance in um, patients that have been treated for first-line ovarian cancer. Again, it's, you know, bevacizumab um, with, with olaparib, and then the other arm, um, I think there was an observation arm, um, but it did not have an olaparib-only arm. Um, it was a positive trial. That one, too, showed that combination is, um, is very active in prolonging uh, PFS in ovary cancer. <clears throat> and then the last, uh, this, the third big trial is called the, the Velia trial. Uh, it's, it's an agent that is called Veliparib, which is not currently approved, at least in the um, GYN cancer space. Um, this agent was combined with chemotherapy, uh, throughout, and then in the one arm, um, it was continued as maintenance. Um, the other arm was no, no veliparib and no veliparib maintenance. I believe there was a third arm that was veliparib during chemo, but no maintenance. <coughs> it was positive as well, and we're expecting that most likely these Three trials will lead to new filings with the FDA, and we see how that goes. And when we get there, we'll hopefully be discussing it, maybe next year. But some key questions remain, and, and these are the questions. I've just told you solo one is positive. Are we going to move Olaparib to first-line treatment for um, BRCA-mutated um, ovarian cancer patients? That has been done, effective four months ago. Um, what happens at the time of recurrence? Because we have no data yet that suggests that PAP will work if we give it after PAP. So now that we've used it in the first line, if these patients with BRCA mutation, uh, if they recall, what, what are we going to do? Um, is PAP still an option? Uh, some trials are going on to look at that. The second question is, PRIMA is positive. Are we going to move niraparib to first line for all high-grade ovarian cancer patients, which is the way the trial was done? Um, I can assure you that that is certainly the intention of the company. I'm sure they are at the door of the FDA as we speak. Um, Piolo 1 is positive. Are we going to now use bevacizumab with olaparib as maintenance in first-line ovary cancer trial? Um, is the cost of that strategy going to be a problem? And um, is that strategy better than solo one? Those are going to be the questions that we need to discuss if and when this becomes approved by the FDA. 
And as I just said, Velia Trier is positive as well. So are we about to see a fourth um, PARP inhibitor in the ovarian cancer space? So these are questions that have not been um, answered. So um, I actually would, since I have saved quite a bit of time, I'll just quickly talk about um, our pathway process. And so we have one of the earliest pathways um, in the country uh, at the University of Pittsburgh uh, Medical um, Center. We no longer, we're no longer the custodian of that pathway system. It's been acquired by a surveyor. And the way the pathway functions is it actually selects expert, there's an expert committee for each cancer site, whether it's liquid or solid malignancy, and it draws experts from all over the country, from the east, from the central part of the country, from the west coast. And these committees meet um, roughly about four times a year, um, ad hoc meetings or um, um, can be uh, conducted when and if necessary. And um, similar to what um, the uh, gentleman from Dinafaba um, had mentioned, uh, we strictly debate based on evidence and all publish uh, data, especially phase three data or um, you know, critical phase two or even phase one B make their way into the committee deliberations. Um, we debate uh, what needs to be in each treatment space or maintenance space. And um, after the debate, um, committee members are actually not asked to vote at the time of the deliberations. Uh, the voting is made individualistic. Um, a discrete email will go to each um, voting member. Um, about within 72 hours after the, um, after the debate is over, and they would vote for which of the options that were debated that they want to pick. Um, what the pathway tries to do is probably why we're having this discussion today, because now, as I mentioned, we have four agents approved for maintenance. We have two, probably soon to be three, approved for treatment, all new agents. So um, it can be confusing for folks who treat ovarian cancer, and the pathway uh, for this purpose is meant to help them, that if you put the patient's scenario, the pathway comes up with the best recommendation. Um, and so that process, it's, it's laborious, uh, but it's a worthwhile process because it prioritizes um, efficacy as the number one, you know, uh, priority, and the second priority is, of course, toxicity, as we should, and cost is put at the bottom, and um, that algorithm helps us to choose the most efficacious and the least expensive treatment, and yet um, be able to minimize toxicity in prescribing treatment to patients. I think I should now take questions. Uh, thank you for a great presentation. Um, my question relates to the role of where Avastin fits in. From a value-based perspective, both PARP inhibitors and Avastin are extremely expensive. Now we have updated data from GOG0218 saying that there is no overall survival benefit for Avastin. So in your opinion going forward, 
should Avastin be on the uh, on the on, on a pathway or for ovarian cancer at all? Thank you uh, for that question and for your comment. Um, yes, that's a very important question that uh, should be addressed. Um, Avastin is um, um, an interesting medication because um, although uh, it was the first to be looked at for maintenance, um, the, the, the benefit in PFS is, to put it at best, modest, uh, which is what you are alluding to with the GOG 0281 um, um, study. Um, however, there is a subset of patients, okay, uh, who are symptomatic with troublesome ascites, uh, patients, for instance, who may have, you, you know, who are GBRCA negative, HRD negative. Uh, there are many, many folks who think that Avastin does have a role in those uh, population of patients. Uh, wide application of Avastin is probably not going to uh, happen based on the other agents that we have. Um, I can tell you that if you look across the country, only about 30% of um, medical OGYN oncologists treating ovarian cancer, um, only 30% are using Avastin as maintenance in the first line. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I think we, oh, I'm sorry, we have one more question. We have time for one more. Thank you. Um, so just by way of introduction, I'm Aubrey Kelly. I work at Amgen, and I'm also a pediatric cancer mom. My son is an AML survivor. He's four years old. The question I have is that this is beautiful data. This is very, very, very exciting data. And when I view it as the mom of a pediatric cancer survivor, I say, wow, this is practice-changing data. How quickly are we from the point of information being available to being able to help treat patients. And the slide yesterday just keeps resonating in my mind that it takes 17 years to change 14%. And so my question is, above and beyond updating and the decision around clinical pathways, what is your institution doing to help bring that education, talk about that physician-patient relationship, et cetera? <laughs> Uh, we're trying to do a lot. I mean, that's the whole idea be behind the pathway creation. We want to make sure, or we wanted to make sure, that everybody is um, allowed to have an opportunity to be exposed to the best standard therapy that is available there based on evidence. And I can give you an example. Um, I think I was the first to give Olaparib to a patient in 2014. I, I treated a patient with Olaparib, I believe, the, a few days after it was approved. Um, so we, we actually would call for an emergency meeting in my institution, those who are involved with the pathway, if we think something critical, like when the FDA made a declaration about Olaratumab. I don't know if you're familiar with that. We felt it was important to go straight into a deliberation and decide what we we're going to do with Olaratumab, which was remove it. And so, yeah, we're, we're trying our best to make sure and we encourage people to join the pathway or form their own pathway. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Alway. Thank you.